Lucas is a stormtrooper, guys. George Lucas is a stormtrooper. 50 years of Lucasfilm. This is a review of a series. We don't do these too often, but I thought I'd do this just because I'm a Star Wars fan and it's Ewan McGregor and it's Obi-Wan Kenobi. And we had a very exciting and excitable response to the trailers for Obi-Wan. Um, and actually, I also wanted to do this because I think this is a really important series. I think, you know, there's been The Mandalorian, um, of which, I, you know, I, I liked a lot. I like a lot about The Mandalorian. But I do think at its worst, it's not entirely dissimilar to the Book of Boba Fett, which is a man in a helmet walking around uh, deserts an awful lot. And I think there's a bit of a problem there for some of the Star Wars Disney Plus series in that I think we need a little bit more than our lead characters essentially walking around deserts, which essentially, or, or, or moving around deserts on uh, various creatures that have been modified from horses or camels or elephants into sort of Star Wars monsters. Anyway, I mean, that, that's a bit of a gripe. That said, I do think The Mandalorian is absolutely uh, helmet and shoulders above The Book of Boba Fett. The Book of Boba Fett I just thought was staggeringly boring. When I first heard about this being made, I wasn't that excited. I've said it many times, I'm not a particularly big fan of the prequel films. Um, I think there are aspects about them that are rich, uh, 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 that are important in terms of universe building, world building, obviously storylines, story arcs, narrative arcs of character, origin stories for Darth Vader, etc. But this Obi-Wan Kenobi series, you know, I knew that Ewan McGregor was coming towards us and I wasn't particularly fond of Ewan McGregor uh, and his, his interpretation of a younger Alec Guinness. Let's not forget Alec Guinness, obviously, from the uh, from the original films, uh, you know, the films that George Lucas made. Um, you know, Alec Guinness brought a really sort of, I don't know, he brought a sort of class act and old-fashioned school of acting, a sort of layer of gravitas. And also, in many ways, the fact that he was so ill-suited to the realm, I think he said in an interview, I've been, I've been filming this ridiculously stupid, nonsensical science fiction film called Star Wars. Little did he know that actually perhaps his not really knowing what's going on and his otherworldliness and his Jedi-ness, if you like, allowed him to occupy that sort of ethereal role in the original films very successfully. But this series has completely rehabilitated, I think, my opinion on Hugh McGregor and his performance in the original prequels, to the point that, I can't believe I'm going to say this, I will possibly go back and watch them all again. Um, that's not to say that they're long, that's not to say that they're quite boring, that's not to say that they're quite stiff and quite wooden and quite incoherent, but I felt that Hugh McGregor in this series functions as a brilliant bridge between the prequels and the original three films in New Hope, uh, New Hope, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Obviously that's exactly where this sits. It sits between the first trilogy and the second trilogy. But this also does a really good and interesting job, I think, of ironing down the ruffles that some of us felt coming out of the prequels and laying the groundwork in a meaningful way into the original trilogy, the, you know, Star Wars New Hope and, and what have you. So I think this series is quietly one of the most important developments in the Star Wars universe in terms of what we watch and how we watch it. So what is this? This, this, is, this is the story of Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan uh, has elected for a um, hermetic life. Uh, he's a recluse, he's now called Ben. I've always loved the fact that Obi-Wan Kenobi was called Ben, Ben Kenobi. He's working in a meat factory uh, in the deserts. Uh, he's kind of watching over Luke on Tatooine. You know, Luke is, a, is an infant. And so you've got these great, quite quickly in this, you've got those early sort of echoes. You've got the prefiguring of Luke. You've got Luke's origin story in here, which is wonderful. You've got Luke as a young boy. Uh, and obviously we know that Luke is the son of Anakin, who is Darth Vader and all that kind of stuff. It's quite quickly revealed to us in, the, in this show that Obi's lost his, Obi-Wan or Ben has lost his 
this kind of his connection to the force but what they introduce into episode one of this and i have to say i've got a new guilty pleasure of a character darth vader is an incredibly uh, brilliantly well-drawn character you know a villainous character evil you know the helmet the cape obviously the breath obviously james Earl jones's voice the rasping that sense of inexpressivity you know he just stands he just looks and then just turns his helmet and you're like taken back to those first moments that you saw him walking onto the ship at the beginning of a new hope but in this show, there's um, Vader has some uh, inquisitors. He's got the Grand Inquisitor, and the Grand Inquisitor is a fabulous, fabulous character. What a character! I think played by is it Rupert Friend? And alongside the Grand Inquisitor is the fifth brother, or there's another kind of Inquisitor who's got this kind of weird round thing on the back of his head. And then there's of course Reva, who's this sort of Inquisitor sister. And Reva, or Reva, Reva, played by brilliantly by Moses Ingram, who as we know has come in for all sorts of racist stick online. Uh, Moses Ingram is fantastic as Reva, real layers of villainy, uh, a, a desire for revenge, vengefulness. Um, she's kind of, she's she's sort of parked between the Grand Inquisitor and this other chap on the side, so she's competing. She's 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 close to Vader, she, but she's, she's aggravated. She's an aggravated character. She plays aggravated really well. So you've got these three sort of Inquisitors, but the Grand Inquisitor, what a brilliant voice. What a meticulously kind of English, again, that great old tradition of Peter Cushing in the original films. You know, the goodies, uh, the villains being real, real English, English types. And so the Grand Inquisitor, I found a really, really intriguing, and uh, frightening, genuinely frightening character with his white pasty face. Within this show we also get, we're introduced to a very young Leia, so we're getting an origin story for Luke, we're getting an origin story for Princess Leia. Could we be teeing up a young adult Leia series at some point? Cute, Millie Bobby Brown, who knows. Um, what are your thoughts on the young Leia in this series? I thought she was, you know, there's always a problem with really young actresses playing that sort of role. You need a precocious kid to play what, what was essentially a precocious character. Carrie Fisher was precocious in herself and she brought precocity, uh, precociousness to, to the character of Princess Leia. And that's what made her, I think, stand out as a sort of female uh, star, you know, as, as, as a female heroine, if you like, within the piece. She was more than just a sort of adult. She was kind of, she was funky. She was funky. She had a kind of bit, a bit of kick in her, didn't she? So you've you got to have that in the child, the child version of Leia. And they succeed. I think the child actress in this is absolutely brilliant. And she's just the right side of precocious annoying and uh, the kind of kid that you're like you know just behave yourself and get, and get over there so I think that was good um, we also had in the first episode we had one of the Safdie brothers playing a Jedi and I like what I liked about the series was it was willing to go to those extra places that sometimes you worry Disney aren't willing to go so for example we have a Jedi knight here who's looking for kind of uh, safety he's looking for uh, you know he wants to be taken in looked after he, plead, he pleads with Obi-Wan Kenobi Obi-Wan says no very stern very certain he doesn't want to get involved in any of this forced shit anymore but, uh, but this this Jedi played by Safdi uh, is hung. I mean, not just killed, but hung and displayed in a local town. And so what we have is we have a situation where Reva, uh, played by Moses, uh, she uh, issues uh, an order for bounty hunters to kidnap Princess Leia. I never really quite got why Reva or Reva, was she just doing this for Vader or did she have a personal gripe with Leia? I, I couldn't quite work that out. But anyway, Obi-Wan is in, he's called up, he's, he's given a bell by Leia's dad or um, uh, you know, surrogate father, and uh, and basically he's called in to save her, and that's kind of the thrust of the series is is how Obi Wan can steer Leia to safety. Episode two, we're introduced to some other characters such as uh, Haja or Haja Haja. Uh, I know these characters all pop up in other animated versions, so apologies. This is the first time I've kind of come across them. So Haja, played by Kumail Nanjiani, who's a brilliant, brilliant comic actor. 
Uh, and he brings a sort of almost Taika Waititi kind of droll sense of humour, not taking the entire franchise seriously, which I think sometimes it needs. Um, Grand Inquisitor puts the city into lockdown at one point, and Raver puts a bounty on Obi-Wan's head. And in this episode, episode two, you've got a real sense of Obi-Wan's relationship with the young Princess Leia, uh, you know, their bond being struck, a connection being uh, developed between them. And I quite like that. I thought it was quite a nice, unlikely sort of buddying up type thing. Not entirely dissimilar, if you think about it, to uh, Mandalor the Mandalorian and uh, his relationship with the, I know it's not a baby Yoda, but to the young sort of Yoda-like creature. Uh, similar sort of, you know, concepts, something small and quite sweet and a bit annoying and a bit precocious, Princess Leia. Um, uh, and the older person, you know, Obi-Wan or the Mandalorian. So a similar sort of narrative device was used there. But I thought it was rich. I thought it was nice. And there was a moment in episode two where Leia was trying to run away from Obi-Wan because she was being really annoying. Uh, she didn't trust him. She didn't believe him. Uh, and he manages to access the Force and, and prevent her from falling and being crushed to her death. And it's in this episode that... Um, Obi-Wan is told, essentially, by Reva that Anakin isn't dead and that, in fact, Vader, Darth Vader, is Anakin. And so you have these moments with, well, I, I thought, this is where I thought Ewan McGregor did a really good job of kind of rectifying what I thought was the damage, if you like, of his early incarnation of, of uh, Obi-Wan. He'd sort of, he'd done something to his voice where it wasn't so plummy or eggy or silly, and yet it kind of neatly sort of prefigured the accent and voice of Alec Guinness. And this is about, I'm not talking about whether he was in person Alec Guinness well. There's better continuity between what Ewan McGregor is giving us in this series and Alec Guinness than there was from the prequels of Alec Guinness. He, he allowed us to access some really sort of deep emotional reservoirs of regret and loss and upset and sadness because of course he has a huge bond with Anakin. But not only that, not only does uh, Reva reveal that um, uh, Anakin is now Darth Vader, but the Grand Inquisitor who comes along to arrest old Kenobi, uh, Reva kills him. Um, and I, I have to say at that moment when Reva stabbed him with her lightsaber, huge, huge disappointment. I was getting Snoke, is that his name? Snoke, the character who was so good in, uh, which one was it? The Rise of Skywalker or the middle, what was it? Last Jedi. And they got rid of this great, brilliantly drawn sort of villain. I was like, what? Why get rid of him? He's great. He's malevolent. He's got all that original kind of, you know, you don't have to do a lot as a villain in a Star Wars film to kind of be villainous. You just have to often stand on the bridge of a spaceship looking out, saying very little, and just doing, sort of clenching your jaw. But the Grand Inquisitor was giving us all sorts. So when I saw that Reva, Raver, um, felled him. I was just like, oh, bloody hell, once again we've lost a, a really rich character. But uh, inadvertently, in killing the Inquisitor, Kenobi and Leia managed to escape, and then we get and we get the most revealing image yet. We get an image of Darth Vader in a tank, and we've got this kind of bubbles, and you've got this sort of tortured skin, and you've got all that kind of, I love all that. I, you know, sometimes I look at the kind of design, the production design of, of Star Wars, and I sometimes wish that it was a bit more Blade Runner than it was cartoon. It kind of verges more on the, on the, on the end of, of just silly, whereas you could actually take it just a little bit more kind of ooh, believable. And I thought that old Darth Vader in a tank of water, uh, whether it was water or whatever, uh, was really kind of nifty and blader and nice. So Darth Vader, episode three, Darth Vader tells Reva to go and hunt down Obi-Wan and if he, if she gets him, uh, he will promote her. That classic sort of Boris Johnson style cabinet management, you know, you do this for me and I will uh, I will make it worth your while. <laughs> but will he? Um, Obi-Wan and Leia get captured and then they are then helped 
uh, by an Imperial officer called Tala. And I thought Tala was a kind of curious character. Again, she was sort of undercover. She was working, is it for the Path Network? I think the Path Network. Sort of, it's not quite yet the, the rebellion. It's not quite the, the rebels, but, but they're sort of, they're a resistance group of some form. Um, and we see a scene where uh, Vader comes into this city, into this town, and he's killing people left, right, and centre. He's just twisting his head and someone flies in the air and necks break. And again, I thought it was really good that Disney and Lucasfilm were willing to take us to a place of real darkness. I really want almost an 18 certificate R-rated version of Star Wars. That's really, I mean, Solo for me gave us a little bit of that. Something that isn't afraid to kind of really just get nasty. And so Darth Vader snapping a few necks as he's wandering through town. Again, really playing on that sort of Western cowboy and Indian type sort of tradition walking through the town. Uh, Kenobi stays put. He allows Leia and this new uh, sort of freedom fighter who's kind of rescued them, the undercover Imperial officer Tyler. They're allowed to escape down a long corridor. They go heading off. Um, and Vader uses the throat choke on Obi-Wan. They have their first fight. And then we have this amazing scene where Obi-Wan and Darth Vader are fighting. And it's sort of reminding you of all those great moments from Star Wars and New Hope. And oh my God, you can't believe it. And you know, when he gets hit and then he falls and, and then Obi-Wan's thrown in fire. And so it was a bit of a damp squib insofar as it didn't really go anywhere, but it was really riffing on memories of watching Obi-Wan and Darth Vader fight with sabers. Wow. And by the end, and by the end, of course, by the end of episode three, Leia is captured yet again. Leia, Leia keeps getting being captured, even though she's a precocious little madam. There's some wonderful touches in this series. There are moments, you know, again, as I say, I love it when it sort of nibbles at the edges of darkness. Uh, Leia gets captured, Kenobi and Tala, you know, they they, they, they try, they, they're split away from Leia and they're trying to sort of rescue her and get back to her. Uh, Kenobi at one point discovers the preserved corpses of Jedis. I mean, preserved corpses of Jedis. It sounds like preserved lemons, doesn't it, in the in the kitchen larder. But this was like, these were, yeah, and there were all sorts of kind of characters just, just, just hanging and preserving. I was getting alien vibes and all that kind of stuff. Vader goes to punish Raver because they've got away and people keep keep escaping. And I think if, if, if anything got baggy, it got baggy about episode four where you felt like, okay, Leia's captured, Leia's lost, uh, Leia's chased, Leia's captured, Leia's lost. Um, and I felt the kind of process perhaps of Obi-Wan and, you know, getting into, you know, rescuing uh, Leia was a bit too easy sometimes. And so, I don't know, it felt a bit back and forwards, a bit a few too, moment, too, too many times. But again, every now and then you're having moments with Ewan McGregor reflecting on what it means to be, you know, you know, he, he's, it's an incredibly interiorized performance from from um, Ewan McGregor. You know, him, him grappling with his his connection with the Force and, and the dark side, and his memories of of uh, Anakin, and and obviously the discovery now that Anakin has become Darth Vader. And so we get these flashbacks. We get these incredibly odd flashbacks, which feels like you're flashing back to the prequels, where you've got a digitally youth youthified. Uh, Obi-Wan uh, fighting a digitally youthified uh, Hayden Christensen uh, as Anakin and they're fighting and, and that was kind of good, it was kind of emotional, it kind of actually did make me want to go back and watch the prequels as I say, I, want, I thought no I want to get I want to get into this, it's quite Shakespearean, I want to get into their relationship, I want to get into their bond, I want to get into the handing down of the baton of, of good versus evil and, and who, who has too much fight in them and who wants to kill rather than preserve and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then we get to this sort of situation where Leia and Tala and Obi-Wan, they're with the path, they're underground in a subterranean vault, Reva has kind of won over Darth Vader and they, they're, they're besieged and these, you know, the kind of, if you like, they're not quite rebel fighters, but they're all wanting to escape. And then in this underground siege, Kenobi discovers through mind games and talking through a big sealed door that Reva actually uh, has placed herself close to Vader, not because she wants to deliver on his malevolence and his desire to rid the world of Jedi, um, but because she was there. She was a child witness at the Jedi Temple Massacre and she's kind of wanted to get close to Vader so she can enact some kind of revenge. 
Avengers. So we have these flashbacks to a young Raver looking horrified as Vader or Anakin uh, killed all these young Jedi. Kenobi surrenders himself, he throws himself on his lightsaber, not literally, but he kind of hands himself over, and Kenobi convinces Raver though to kill Vader, so you have this new subplot that develops where you've got Reva, Raver wanting to push against Vader, but then Vader and Reva, they have a fight because Reva tries to kill Vader, and Vader realises that he's being, he's being, basically it's being double-crossed, he's not being stabbed in the back, he's being stabbed in the front, but in fact he's actually being stabbed in the back, and then he's, she tries to stab him in the front. And so what happens? With no explanation whatsoever, zero explanation, the Grand Inquisitor's back, which, as I've just said, I was really missing him, so I was really pleased to see him back. But I didn't understand why he wasn't dead. There was no explanation either. He just kind of walked back in and said, ha 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 ha, I'm back, give us me, give us me badge back. I'm the boss again, and he wandered off, which is good, because if there's another series, he's back, and he's got to be back, so that's great. Uh, meanwhile, Reva, I guess, in a desire to kind of enact indirect revenge against Vader, she hasn't quite died. She's been left for dead, but she hasn't quite died, which is unlike Vader, don't you think? I think Darth Vader would have made sure that she was dead, that there wasn't a single microcosmic bump or lump from her heartbeat. Don't you think? I think so. Anyway, she discovers where Luke is living. And so the kind of story comes around that she's going to go and kill Luke, just like he killed all the youngsters at the Jedi Temple. Because Luke is his son, and he is his father. I just want to say something here about Darth Vader in this series. He's great. He's got the same presence. He has the same sort of on-screen sort of malevolence. There's a real sense of kind of, oh, what's going to happen? For saying he's so inexpressive and has one or two sound effects, He's quite, he's got some range. But one thing I think they got wrong in this series, I don't know if anyone else agrees with this, a couple of scenes where he's walking through wide shots, so say in the subterranean vaults when they had the siege, as he walks through and his cape flaps back, he moved a touch too quickly. I'm, I'm being a sucker for detail here, but one of the things I remember about him when he walked onto screen for the first time ever at the beginning of A New Hope, back in 77, was obviously he walks with purpose, but he didn't walk rapidly, he was never in a rush. And I think the idea that Darth Vader's in a rush just parks the idea that he's not quite in control of things. And I think he was a bit too rushed here. They needed to slow him down. He needed to take a more sort of measured pace. It's just a, it's a microcosmic criticism, but it's, it's a criticism nonetheless. And so in the final episode, I, I was expecting great big sort of crescendos of emotion and all sorts of things in the, in the in the final episode. But probably the strongest scene for me in the final episode is Kenobi and Darth Vader facing off on what essentially is a lonely planet. It's like, where's a, it's like, uh, where's a community planet? Yeah, I think that one's got no one on it. Okay, well, let's head up there. And so they meet and they have this great, it's brilliant, this brilliant sort of mind fight. They fire rocks at each other. I mean, my God, the headaches, the bruises, the kind of stress, the sinews, the pressure on their bodies and all sorts of things. Huge fight, really good. Top draw kind of Star Wars saber rock-throwing fight. All the force is there, I feel the force, and the human force. And then, of course, uh, Ewan McGregor's having all these flashbacks and he's feeling the loss of having lost Anakin to the dark side. And he makes an almighty swipe at Darth Vader's helmet. No, no, no euphemism there at all. And the slice across uh, Darth Vader's helmet is brilliant. It's like the, it's like the battered realism of uh, Kylo Ren's helmet. It looked great. It was just awful. It was like, Ugh. and then you've got this damaged face underneath it, uh, and all of that. And that was great. Kenobi, very sad. A lot of great acting, actually. I felt in the final episode here from Ewan McGregor. And so for me, this final episode, whilst Reva then goes to get Luke, but then she sort of she has a moment where she leaves the dark side. She kind of she goes from killing Luke or to rescuing Luke and bringing him back and Kenobi sort of congratulates her on leaving the dark side and all that kind of stuff. 
uh, Vader then kind of, it, for me, it didn't wrap up in quite as meaningful a way as I was hoping it to. Um, you know, Vader with his scar and his smashed helmet gets on the blower to Emperor Palpatine. Palpatine says, you're not focusing on the right things, matey flip. You need to focus where focus is due. And so uh, you feel that Darth Vader goes, all right, well, we'll let Obi-Wan go because that's convenient because he's going to crop up further down the way in the original three films. Um, but I felt that was a bit kind of, I felt there could have been a bit, a, a bit more of a meaningful closure to Vader. I mean, it's difficult. One of the challenges for a series like this is we know exactly what's coming next and you can't really even play with the idea or dangle before us the idea that Darth Vader or Obi-Wan or Princess Leia or Luke Skywalker are going to die. So you've actually got very little to play with there in the way, in the realm of, you know, who, who's going to survive, who isn't going to survive, what's going to happen that's going to surprise me. And that's where I think this series is quite clever because it does a really good job of sliding itself in like a, like a very tightly fitting piece of a jigsaw puzzle into quite a complicated and long and elaborate uh, bigger jigsaw. It slots in just perfectly and yet it still manages to keep you entertained and interested and intrigued and on the edge of your seat. Uh, sufficiently for you to sort of spend your time with it and it just provides a really for me it provides a sort of walkway from the original films that my generation loves towards the prequels that we're a bit po-faced about and yet it sits neatly between the two so I, I, I really I, I thought it did a really good job of that I thought it gave depth to Obi-Wan's character um, I thought Ewan McGregor brought real sort of complexity to it I thought it brought layers to it. It made me want uh, another series. Though again, of course, how long can you keep going knowing that you haven't got the ultimate sort of uh, jeopardy, if you like, of will Kenobi die, will Vader die, all that kind of stuff. So I thought it just did a very good job of kind of, I think, thickening out and enriching the uh, the origin stories and the character arcs of characters within the Star Wars universe. And I think it might make, I think what this series might do is make the entire experience of watching all the Star Wars films that much richer because we've kind of had, a, like, like a lot of the Star Wars fan base have had, we've had a lot more of the details filled in. We've been given more context, we've been given more, more of a sense. We've sort of sat with the characters when they were younger and what have you. We'll be a little bit more invested in the young Luke when we first see him in A New Hope, Star Wars A New Hope, because we've seen him as a small child, although he didn't really sort of say much in this. Uh, and then of course at the end of this, as if to round out Obi-Wan's sort of conversion and return to the Force, we see him see in a moment, which I know for many Star Wars fans was a moment of sheer joy and, and, and huge, huge emotion in many regards, was we see Liam Neeson as Qui-Gon, 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 Qui-Gon is standing there as, a, as an apparition, um, the Obi-Wan's very own personal Jedi Master, and they head off into the Tatooine sunset. And there you go. So I would fully recommend it. I'd say it was very entertaining. It's incredibly escapist. It totally delivered for me, an old fogey Star Wars fan, on all the stuff that I love, the nostalgia and everything. But it also made me less judgy of other stuff that's coming in, both before it and the prequels, or stuff that's going to come. And I thought it had a richer purpose than even The Mandalorian at its best, and certainly Book of Boba Fett, which I think I'm going to have to put to the side as another sort of errata in the Star Wars universe. What do you think, guys? Did you enjoy it as much as I did? Would you recommend it? Did it upset your Star Wars, Star Wars universe, or did it sort of make it more complete? For more film and family fun, don't forget to click the subscribe button and make sure to click the bell to never miss an update.